Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, everyone? So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Justin Winters of One Earth. One Earth is a nonprofit working together to try and solve the biggest issue of our time, the climate crisis. They're trying to do so with three different pillars that we talk about. So energy transition, nature conservation, and regenerative agriculture. What I loved about this podcast was, well, first of all, it was incredibly difficult to schedule. Um, I think it was probably like five or six months for us to try and schedule, mainly because Justin is busy literally saving the world. So once we were able to schedule it, I was incredibly grateful for the time that we had. Um, But also, I left the podcast incredibly positive, and my hope is you will as well. What was nice is Justin is on the forefront of this, and she's a very, very positive person, but also made me feel like we actually have hope with the climate crisis. She made me realize that it's not only possible to solve the climate crisis, but it's also possible with the tools that we already have at our disposal. So here am I thinking that you know innovation is going to be the way to get us out of there. Someone's going to have to invent something, some sort of technology to sequester carbon or to do something to get us out of this. We're too far gone. But the way we talk about we have everything we need. Innovation is not as important as it might seem. It's not as important as the power of biodiversity, the power of indigenous communities being enabled to protect this biodiversity, the power of working together and not relying on governments and not needing big tech and really kind of doing a lot of things people are currently doing and doubling down on that and staying steadfast with the goal. It was incredibly uplifting to hear someone say that because, as you probably know, the climate crisis is incredibly grim. The news you're hearing or that comes out nowadays is incredibly negative, right? As it should be, hopefully, sometimes to instill action. But we talked about how important it is to be positive about this, right? To not give up, to realize how important this is. One thing I really loved about this episode was talking about their nonprofit navigator, the Project Marketplace. It's on a website called One.Earth and allows you to see different projects, different initiatives filter by uh, the projects or bioregion or um, you know the particular area you're looking for. See things that are women-led, see things that are uh, indigenous-led, see things that are around regenerative agriculture or energy transition or nature conservation or different levels of funding or different partners or all sorts of different things that you can really dig in and see what kind of projects are in my area or an area I'm interested in that are working to solve the climate crisis. And not only can you see those projects, you can support them. You can Um, provide funds for them. Eventually, you'll be able to volunteer with them. Uh, You can do research. You can help them with some things like that. There's a lot of things that can be done here. And I think this is the first project of its kind that really 
combines different initiatives and really sheds lights on some of these incredible nonprofits that are in existence today. So I was really excited to talk about this. It's a brand new initiative for them. And I was blown away. I was looking at it right before the interview and even just now um, and really think that, you know, one of the biggest things for getting out of any situation, whether it's a climate crisis or conservation, um, is telling, being able to tell those stories and connect those stories with certain people who are willing to support those. So I really hope you get the chance to look at that. It's at one.earth. And lastly, I will say that work and personal life has been particularly crazy for the past few weeks. So we actually recorded this, I think, on Giving Tuesday, and I'm just getting to uploading it now. So there'll be some references like COP15 that Justin makes that is a little bit dated by the time this is going to be published. That's totally on me. Um, yeah, I'm working on getting these out quicker. But yeah, this is a particularly um, kind of delayed one. But I appreciate everyone's patience with that. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm sure you will. Honestly, if you need to pick me up about anything conservation related, if you need to pick me up about anything climate change related, listen to this. Justin knows her stuff and is incredibly positive and is incredibly plugged in and is a real joy to talk to and listen to. So please like, rate, review, subscribe, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I am sure you will. Well, thank you so much for your time, Justin. I appreciate it. I want to jump right in um, and chat with you and kind of talk with One Earth, uh, your organization. You are facing some of the biggest issues today, right? Between climate change, mass extinction, food waste, agriculture, access to water. There's a lot of things that One Earth is working to mitigate or, um, you know, if not completely uh, stop entirely. How do you stay focused and what do you do personally to stay positive? I know you're a very positive person. I've heard you in interviews. What do you do to maintain that outlook? Well, first of all, Brian, thanks for having me here. Um, super excited to be in dialogue with you. Um, so, you know, grateful for this platform to, to speak to folks about the earth and what we're facing. Um, but to your question, for me, um, you know, I've been down this journey of really grappling with some of the big questions, you know, A, is it possible to solve the climate crisis? How do we both solve the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis, which are these two emerging really massive threats to humanity and to all life on earth. Um, and we've gone down this rabbit hole, which um, I'm happy to explain a lot more about, but both the science and the incredible network of people that I've had the privilege and honor of working with for about 15 years, um, around the world are the things that give me hope. I mean, the science says that it is indeed possible for us to solve this. All the solutions that we need exist right now. Um, and then, you know, the, the lesser known piece of this is, is really the incredible network of people around the world that are driving change on the ground in their communities um, that we really believe are central to solving the problem. And once you get to know that incredible network of people and you see evidence of their work and you get a sense of this kind of collective movement that's already well underway and happening, then it's, it, it, you can't help but be hopeful. 
and you can't help but be inspired. But it's a story and a reality that most of us don't get to tap into because um, most of those those leaders that are and those communities that are driving change, the media doesn't really talk about them. They're not you know, they're not making the headlines. Um, it is it is a somewhat quiet movement that is really building, and and pieces of that movement are loud and vocal, like the incredible youth activists that are leading the way and many of the international negotiations. But really, it's it's the knowledge that there's this movement of millions of people around the world that are driving the change that we need right now. Um, and they're there, and we just need to help scale their work. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great that's a great beginning already. It makes everybody feel super positive because I've heard you mention uh you know, for in a large part, we've moved past one of the shining lights you've said is as a whole, you feel like people have moved past climate denialism. But which is good, right? It's positive. But we've kind of moved into climate nihilism or fatalism. Um, and like eco anxiety. How do you combat that? How have you seen that manifest itself? Um, and yeah, what are, what are your what would you say to someone who who exhibits those? those traits? Well, I mean, it's, you know, we have a lot of data to back up exactly what you're saying, which I'm sure you've, you've researched and seen. Um, it is really interesting. You know, we definitely have moved past climate denialism being the issue. 70% of people believe that climate change is real and, and a present threat. Um, but the truth is, is that the majority of folks believe that there's nothing that we can do about it. There's there's no sense that it is possible for us to solve this. Um, and you can imagine when you when you take that down to other issues in your life, when you're faced with something large and looming and existential, a problem that you don't see a solutions pathway out of then of course it leads to total anxiety and depression. Um, you know, how, how else would you feel if you don't see a way out of, of you know, destruction and um, just demise, right? Like, I mean, climate change is that big. Um, it is a huge, overwhelming, complex issue. And when you learn about it, you understand it and you start to see it actually happening in your community or your country and the impacts of it, if you don't see a way out of it and and all the stories that you're hearing is that it's over, like there's nothing we can do, <laughs> there's yeah. no way out of this, doomed as a species, that's how you're going to feel. So, um, you know, it really in many ways actually kind of breaks my heart how many people, especially younger generations, are fully aware of the problem that they're facing and yet they're completely unaware because we're not reaching them and we're not communicating to them that there are actually solutions to this right now and there's a way out and a way forward. And not only is there a way out and a way forward to actually solving the climate crisis from a technical standpoint, right? Like limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C, but solving it means that we have this huge opportunity to redesign our human systems that aren't working anymore. You know, toxic air and energy and water and food that's not healthy. Solving climate change the right way means solving these other systemic issues. Um, and this is an opportunity for us to redesign how humans live on Earth and how we live with each other and how we treat one another. So there's, I think it's, 
it is it is a massive task to take on galvanizing folks around this, but it's certainly a worthy one, um, and it will never be solved with one person alone. So we really have to take on the challenge and the opportunity of building a global movement of million of pe- millions of people that are willing to jump into action to solve this. And and what One Earth does that. Um... I've I've never really seen another organization do. I'm sure they do, right? But I've never really seen it laid out like this. And I love it. Uh, it's just kind of breaking it into three main ways to mitigate climate change to at or below 1.5 degrees C, which to me is even helpful look, looking it into those three ways. But then you break it down further. But first, those three ways, if you can talk about those main ways and like what um, what are the paths for each one, because even that already kind of makes it seem a little bit more feasible. Um, so really, you know, we we started the journey with One Earth back in 2016 um, when I was leading the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. And I had been little, you know, leading that and building that since about 2007. And I had been actively looking for a strategy, a strategy for that could inform both our communications on climate and environment issues and could also inform our strategy for grant making, for getting dollars out the door to working on environmental issues and climate issues. And I, we knew, we knew kind of instinctively at the time, um, even though it wasn't a big part of the discourse around climate, that nature was a central part of solving the climate crisis and could be a big solutions pathway but most of the focus at the time was really around the energy transition that needed to happen. So we, but we were looking for clarity and we were also looking for pathways or a framework that would A, answer the question, is it possible to solve the climate crisis? Mm-hmm. Also give us a goal line that we should be shooting for as a movement, right? Not just the foundation I was working for, but for the movement. Um, and we wanted it to be clear clear and concise, like, because it's so hard to wrap your mind around not only the causes of, of climate change, but also the solutions to the climate change. And there just wasn't any real clarity about it. So we had this incredible opportunity to, to interface with scientists from around the world. Anybody that I called would pick up the phone because I worked at the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation and was interested in willing to talk. And, and that was a really privileged position to be in, and, and we used it to our advantage. And it turned out that there, there are scientists all over the world that have been very focused on different sectors or pieces of the solution, um, but they were really interested to work with us to start to find the scientific solutions pathways to this. So what came out of that was that we ended up funding um, the first version of the One Earth Climate Model. The first version of the One Earth Climate Model came out in 2019. It's a 500-page book. It was published by Springer Nature. But I can give you the the top line takeaway, which which will get to what you were speaking to earlier around these kind of three, you know, key solutions pillars to solving the climate crisis. So what came out of that peer-reviewed science, and they just did an update to it. Um, so it's even more current and updated now, but. Um, what came out of that science, which took about two and a half years to, to produce the research um, and was led by University of Technology Sydney and German Aerospace Center, um, was that 
A, yes, we can solve the climate crisis. We can limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C, average global temperature rise, which is this really critical limit um, beyond which there's a cascade of, of issues that become insurmountable to, to solve. Um, we may be able to go a little bit past that, but it's it, the further you go, the harder it is to come back into conditions that support life, human life, plant life, animal life, et cetera. Um, and so it's possible to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C, and we can do it with existing solutions. So that science, along with additional scopes of science that, that we have both spearheaded and funded with networks of scientists from around the world, gave birth to this really clear three-pillar um, approach to solving the climate crisis. So the first thing that we need to accomplish is we need to transition to 100% renewable energy, clean renewable energy. The second part, and these are all big top line, you know, goals and objectives. But if there was ever a moment to be ambitious, yeah. it would be right now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, the second kind of big solutions pathway is a big effort to protect, connect, and restore 50% of the world's lands and oceans. And this is incredibly important because nature, whether it's on land or sea, does an incredible job at storing carbon. Um, and not only does it do that, but nature also makes all of the conditions that are conducive to life, that are conducive to creating clean air for humans to breathe, healthy food, et cetera. So, um, you know, the very fabric of life is dependent upon nature staying intact and healthy and being able to rebalance our climate. And then the third um, core solutions pathway is transitioning to regenerative agriculture. So essentially, we need to move away from industrial scale agriculture and a lot of the pollutants that are used and, and poor methods that are used in large scale industrial agriculture and produce our food and fiber in, regener in regenerative ways. So those are kind of the three top line solutions pathways. And, and something that you were alluding to earlier was that, you know, those are the three central um, solutions pathways, but then there's there is a whole array of about 70 different, 76 different solutions organized across those three pillars that are these very specific sets of solutions that need to be scaled and implemented around the world. Yeah. And I've looked into those and, and first of all, those three core ones, um, you know, it sounds like the, you know, some of them get more attention than others, right? energy transition gets a lot more attention. I think people are now just starting to understand the importance of nature conservation and regenerative ag agriculture. Um, but let's say drilling down to those 76 solutions, those levers of change, uh, I bet a lot of people don't know a lot of those, right? Those, those, those groups within those large pillars. Are there any that you're really excited about? Are there any of those that you think you might be, um, you know, that, that might have a, a, a larger impact than others? I'm really curious about those. Well, actually, I mean, I think I think probably one thing that's unique about the our science program um, and our work in general, because we don't do just science, we also have a, a media program, and then um, we also have a whole program that's around scaling philanthropy for around the around the world that represent on the ground climate solutions that align with many of these solutions pathways. Um, but 
to me, what's unique about this is that this is an attempt to understand the holistic solution to a very complex problem. You know, there's there's a there's a tendency, a human tendency, I think, um, to want to find one kind of silver bullet solution to big, complicated, hairy problems. For sure. <laughs> and, and the truth is, is that climate change is not going to be solved that way. It just it can't be. It's no singular solution can solve all of this. Um, so we are we are required to think far more holistically about the solutions that we apply. So to your point earlier, like back in 2016, 2015, most of the dialogue was around the energy transition, right? And it's true, that is a huge piece of the equation. But you can't just focus on that and not work on nature conservation and restoration. Because unless you protect and restore nature at scale, the energy transition, that won't matter. You've got to do them hand in hand. And at the same time, you can't protect and, and restore an adequate amount of nature without ensuring that our existing agricultural footprint is vibrant and healthy and can produce enough food um, and isn't making the rest of our natural lands and waters toxic and polluted. So you literally can't think about these things in a vacuum. Yeah. It's not going to work. So, you know, unfortunately, this is just a podcast, so I can't show you all visuals. Um, and we don't have, we actually just produce this much more granular kind of solution set that you're speaking to. Um, but we will, over the next year, be laying all of this out on the website so that people can really... Um, go into each of the solutions pathways and understand really what does it mean to transition to 100% renewable energy and in, um, you know, it means transitioning to renewable power, renewable heat, renewable transport and energy efficiency. It gets much more complex, but I think it's important to be able to ladder that complex knowledge up to something simplified like the three pillars. Um, Maybe to your to your question around the specific solutions that get me excited, um, I mean, a lot of them do. One of the ones that's called out is urban biodiversity under land conservation. So this is really calling out the need to support biodiversity in our urban landscapes. That's a huge and really exciting proposition because anybody who lives in a major city in an urban environment knows how essential beautiful, vibrant parks are to making sitting, city living, you know, fun and joyful. Um, so it's, you know, that's, it seems like it's just a small solution, but it's actually a pretty central piece to ensuring that we solve the climate crisis and also ensure that biodiversity in our, in our natural world is intact and able to, to help us grapple with this problem. Um, maybe just to call out another one that I really love, you know, seed, seed diversity and smallholder farms. You know, 70% 70% of our food is produced by smallholder farmers. And many of those are women. Um, so there's this huge opportunity to recognize and scale up and support small scale farms that are producing an array of organic and very diverse crops. You know, these aren't the monoculture giant farms that we currently have. It's really recognizing the need for these small um, you know, small farms around the world that are able to produce crops that are much more relevant to their region um, and that support seed diversity. Those are actually climate solutions. 
And I think most people don't have an understanding that these seemingly small things that, that look small when you're, you know, in the context of such a big problem um, are actually a very important part of, of getting us to solving this. 100%. And what's cool is there are, you know, there are people working on each one of these, right? The, the, these are actual initiatives, which is, you know, a lot, uh, very comforting, right, to know, because it does, it seems like it is, it's a huge problem. And I always thought, you know, we, uh, we're we gonna have to innovate our way out of this, or there's, there would be one like, carbon sequestration or something like that. Um, that would allow us to turn back the clocks a little bit. Uh, it's not going to be, it's not going to be that easy, but there are, we've already got boots on ground kind of working through each one of these 76 initiatives a couple times over. Well, and, and that's not to say, um, that innovation isn't an important part of it. You know, it's, it's kind of innovation in service to scaling offshore wind innovation in service to, um, scaling indigenous land tenure rights. You know, there's there are there are actually really incredible innovations in technology or products or tools that help to scale all those solutions sets. But we have been outsized focused on kind of big silver bullet technology yeah. solutions that actually aren't the right solutions set that we know aren't scalable and are also problematic because they distract us from the solutions that we have actually right now. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned international. Uh, first of all, how excited were you uh, when Lula da Silva won in Brazil and beat Bolsonaro with the, uh, the presidential election? And second of all, does that like does that change any of your outlooks? Like I know people were talking when Trump got in the office uh, in 2017, 2016, 2017, about how that could change the conversation a hundred years ago about that time period of climate. And I think people said the very similar things about Bolsonaro, like that could be a, a, a line in the sand for conservation, for climate change, for all these initiatives. Does that change? Does, does it make, you know, do you have to adapt to how government policy changes or, or corporate policy changes? I know you're staying steadfast to your goal, but like how much, how up to date do you have to be? It seems like that's another exhausting initiative for you to, to kind of uh, um, <laughs> stay on top of. Well, I mean, you know, I guess one way to think about it is we know that the science has tells us that it is indeed possible to solve this. We've now identified all the solutions, pathways that need to be scaled and invested in. Um, the, that's all the what, right? Then there's the how. There's the how are you going to scale those solutions? And that that cuts across many different levers of change. Everything from, you know, poli big policy change to science and technology and innovation, like we were just speaking about, um, to community action, to education and awareness. There's a, a an equally complex layer of how you make change happen that you have to grapple with. And that, you know, and, and big changes in leadership, like we saw in Brazil, they do make or break many things, mm. but they usually are, are, they are short term. And I think that we, they have very real world impacts, but 
most of the time, and, and a lot of our youth today, and most people in general have been kind of sold this idea that the way that you drive change is by voting. Now, of course, like that is that is a central piece of the equation. We have to have political leaders who are helping us mobilize and drive change at the policy level, at the government government level, right? We need that. But that 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 is only one lever of change. There's other ways for people to drive change. So I, you know, I've I've we've worked with quite a few youth activists um, who have over the last couple of years really dedicated their life to um, raising awareness, being a voice around this, you know, applying pressure to political leaders, and often doing that at big national and international moments and stages like the COP that just happened. Um, but those, those, those pieces of major kind of policy change, they're super important, but they are usually the last measure of change that you're going to get a win on, right? Yeah. So to be thinking that's, that's the only play that we have, it's wrong. Um, and it's disempowering because there's a million and one other ways in which we as individuals can be driving change. And, and I think thus far, a lot of what the general public has been told about how they can take action on climate changes, you can either change your light bulb or you can also go out and vote. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know about you, but like, that's not enough. I have a lot more skills that I want to bring to the table. And I know, and and the truth is, now that I've done this work for 15 years, it's super clear that each and every single one of us has something to bring to the table in driving the transformation that has to take place over the next five to 10 to 20 years. Yeah, you're so right. I know we've heard so much about voting, which is important, right? And not just on a conservation climate uh, perspective, but you know, civil rights perspective, right? All the other things we're seeing lately, but um, especially, especially when things don't go the way I feel like they should um, politically, it can definitely be disheartening. Like we talked about at the beginning, right? Bolsonaro won. I was definitely uh, bummed out about that to say the least. Right. But it's good to yeah. know that there's a lot of other options out there. Um, and that's like you said, that's like the last one that you are all are, really banking on and really kind of planning things around that. Even if it, even if worst case scenario happens, um, we still have these 75 other options to go for. Well, none of those, none of those options or solutions are going to happen without people. Yeah. Right. Um, so the big part of the equation here is, is people power and, we are capable of incredible things when we collectively join forces to solve monumental problems or crises or injustices. We have enormous power. Um, so there's, you know, I just, if, if I would want anybody to kind of walk away with a different sense, it's that each and every single person has something to offer and also has incredible power when you start thinking about how you can work with your community, your family, your network of friends to start to change the script and to start to, to redefine what our future looks like. I love that. And you've mentioned that some of the goals are 
right, for land conservation. I know by 2050, there's an initiative to uh, try and save, protect 50% of, of the lands. A, how are we, and I think even by 2030, there's an initiative to get to 30%. Um, a, how are we trending towards that? Um, and B, are there any initiatives to, of like land regeneration or rewilding? Tons. Um, and I'll probably have to point to the, the project marketplace and the navigator that yeah. you and I talked about before we hopped on this podcast. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot of momentum happening around this. There's been this longstanding recognition of the need for the energy transition. What has been the really exciting push over the last couple of years is a recognition and an understanding of the need to protect and restore nature in order to solve the climate crisis and ensure that we have a livable, vibrant future for humanity. Um, and there's a growing recognition of the role of, of agriculture and the need to transition our agricultural systems, um, which is also an equally exciting proposition because it's about food and mm -hmm. it's about fiber and clothing. And these are all things that feel very relevant to most people, what you eat and what you wear you know, have 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 an immediate kind of connection for, for a lot of people. So it starts to really open up the door. The movement around nature conservation um, has been growing. And there are one of one of the big scientific efforts that we that we led on. Um, the first version of it came out in 2020, but we produced in in partnership with several other organizations and leading conservation scientists, something called the Global Safety Net. That was a scientific effort to understand how much land is still intact, what land is important for protecting to, to keep critical, critical carbon stores in the ground and to support biodiversity. You know, where are the restoration opportunities where there are areas that have been degraded but can be restored and brought back and stored deep carbon? Um, and so that effort, the Global Safety Net, everybody can check that out on globalsafetynet.app. Um, and there is, it, you know, it is really intended for folks that are working kind of in the conservation and, and nature space, policy space. But there is a viewer on there that allows you to see the roadmap of the roughly 50% of the world's lands that need to be protected and restored. Um, and we have the second version of that underway right now with our partners and hope to have that come out in, you know, in the spring of next year. It'll be a much higher resol resolution version that starts to become a really powerful tool for folks in, in their state, in their city to understand the roadmap of nature in their local regions that needs to be protected and restored. So this, this movement around the recognition of nature and the role that protecting and restoring nature plays in solving the climate crisis is definitely growing. Um, there's a big COP coming um, around called the Convention on Biological Diversity that is happening next week. Um, it is similar to the climate COP, but less well-known. Um, people are not as aware of the Convention on Biological Diversity. But this is an international framework and conference where um, countries make decisions around their commitments to protecting nature. Um, and we're seeing more and more ambitious um, commitments being made by different countries. So hopefully that the CBD conference that's coming um, 
will show, you know, additional momentum around that. Are there any countries that you find are leading the way or leading the charge with protecting more land than others? Yeah, certainly. And it's kind of changing all the time. <laughs> there's, sure, yeah. there's a lot of momentum happening right now. So for folks that are kind of interested in tracking this, um, I'd say that, um, you know, in the next two weeks, we're going to hear a lot of announcements coming out in the press around the, around the CBD and around different country-wide commitments. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to climate in that commitments are only as good as policy, right. you know? Um, and there's a wrinkle here that, that gets into complexity, and that is that right now it's not about just traditional conservation methodologies. The only way to adequately and justly protect and restore nature at scale is to do that through a whole array of new conservation types, um, and some of them very old conservation types, like really supporting indigenous-led conservation and really scaling indigenous um, indigenous land tenure rights. Because what, what, what history and what science shows us and what the data shows us is that most of the world's remaining biodiversity is on, on indigenous lands. Mm. They, across the board, indigenous communities are, are the best keepers of our biodiversity. So it's, it's a moment to really honor and think about the broader array of conservation methodologies that need to be need to be funded and resourced and scaled. Hmm. Yeah, I talk with a lot of people in nonprofits, and it seems like the old school way of like going in, funding a project, um, like kicking people out of that land of that protected land who have lived there. It's gone. It doesn't. It didn't really work that well. And it's not something that people are, are really kind of looking forward to for the future. And it seems like the way of um, kind of incorporating the people who live in that area is going, I mean, it, it seems logical, but right. Sometimes we've got to come to these conclusions. It takes a while, but um, you know, in, including the people who live in that area is the best path to success, right. Instead of booting yeah. them out and, yeah. and, and making them almost the enemy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, it, when we look back at the history of conservation, there's a, you know, there's a long, dark history to conservation, yeah. um, even though it is oftentimes with um, a good long-term aim. Um, but we're in a moment right now, there's a recognition that um, those older school methodologies of conservation, they need to be rethought. And we really need to be allocating resources to new types of conservation. And I had the honor and the privilege of being able to support many of those projects over the last 15 years that were indigenous led, they were phenomenal projects. Mm. Um, and ultimately, and, and many indigenous communities have thousands of years of experience and knowledge about their lands and biodiversity and un understanding how to protect that biodiversity. It's a much more complex, rich story than we've than I think most people understand, you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. not about just fencing off areas and letting nature do its thing. Um, humans have lived on the planet for a long time and there's a lot of historic knowledge about what it takes um, to, you know, to sustain and keep biodiversity and people healthy. You're also like 
removing a lot of would-be advocates, right? Probably your biggest advocates, the most important advocates, the people who live there. Uh, and you're almost, you're almost kind of, um, or at least that, that method almost kind of uh, put a lot of blame on, on those people, which is super frustrating. It seems very counterintuitive. Well, and wrong. I mean, it's yeah. like ethically <laughs> wrong. wrong. <laughs> Let's get down it's to it. Yeah, wrong. Wrong. I mean, the thing is, is that imagine if, say we let the world heat up beyond recognition and all of our arable land turns into desert and people are are piling into urban centers because it's no longer viable to live on lands that sustain them for generations, right? Um, and we no longer have productive, viable agricultural lands. Like this, that is not the amount of people moving around the planet and needing more and more of less resources that's a that's a gnarly picture of a future it's it's not it's not viable what we want to do is for people to be able to continue living on their lands and building community on their place and taking care of it and making it healthier, not only making the lands and the waters healthier and bringing it back, but also building a strong sense of community um, and a sense of connection to place. And, and then the long-term you have, then you have communities around the world who are deeply connected and rooted to their place and, and taking care of it. And we have thousands of communities that have done that for millennia and can show us a really powerful pathway to how to do that correctly. Yeah. So what would you say to the other side of it? What would you say to the people who might be from areas that need protecting and are not really interested in protecting it? Like I always think of, of um, you know, I think of parts of Africa and I think of uh, the Amazon, right? When the argument is like, well, America, you've had this ability to develop this whole time. And now we're just getting to the point where we can develop. And you're telling us we can't. Like, what's going on with that? And also knowing that a lot of these lo locations will probably share more of the burden of um, uh, of of that land protection, right? We're, we're going to want to protect more of the Amazon, or we're going to need to, than maybe a lot of other lands. So Brazil might have an issue with that, as we've been seeing lately. What kind of things would you say to those people who might not be as interested in that area, who might not be interested in protecting, and might find it unfair that, that again, the US, Europe, we've had this kind of ability to develop unfettered, and now all of a sudden it seems like our, our attention is being focused more on conservation and telling those developing countries that they can't develop. Well, it's a huge conundrum. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the kind of existential things that needs to be addressed is if the industrialized countries of the world who have are the ones who are the main drivers of climate change because they've extracted the most resources um, and burned the most fossil fuels and built the most unsustainable systems. Um, if those are the very countries that are now trying to, you know, lead kind of international negotiations and, and ask developing countries to, you know, put a limit on on their extraction of, of resources like oil and and minerals, et cetera. Um, well, then there needs to be a proper recognition of 
and and a reason, a financial reason for those developing countries to keep their 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 natural lands um, intact. They need to be recognized um, and supported in that financial kind of transition. And so a lot of what came out of COP, you know, was um, a big commitment around resource flow to developing countries um, to support a very just transition so that we can kind of collectively solve the climate crisis. This is an issue that this resource flow and the unjustness of the situation is something that is playing out real time right now. Like this is this is playing out across the climate cops. It's playing out across across um, even at the national level in the United States is very much playing out right now. Um, but the good news is it looks like there's a full recognition of that. And there are commitments from countries who are recognizing that resource flow needs to be dealt with. Like if you're going to ask developing countries to, to move away from fossil fuels and to not extract resources from nature that's critical to keep intact, then you've got to figure out a system for compensation. Hmm. And I know Germany, and I think Sweden, I would imagine Sweden, were really involved in that for the um, Amazon, right? I know they were trying to pay to to maintain some of that, um, of the land. I'm wondering if we have any data on that success, right? Because um, that would be an interesting thing to see, right? Like, is that something that we've been proven successful? Because it seems to be the, the, the only path forward, right? Just kind of like your point. Here we are, these Western countries um, have, have had the opportunity to benefit from these uh, resources and lands. And then now we're saying it's not possible for other ones too. So I'm not sure if you have any data on that. I'm like, uh, <laughs> or like uh, uh, kind of anecdotally, like has that been successful when we've seen that happen in, um, you know, in the Amazon for say? Yeah, not off the cuff, um, because a lot of my background is not like purely focused on policy work. Sure. A lot of my my work is focused on kind of building the ground game um, and on the role of philanthropic resources that they can and should be playing in this moment. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I, there are definitely those kind of anecdotes that we can point to. Um, and it's been a long, it's been a long, gnarly dialogue. You know, a lot of a lot of those anecdotes, I mean, unfortunately, many of them are about pledges and commitments that never came through. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, which is frustrating, but it's kind of the nature of the beast. Um, but it seems like as hard as it is to protect land, it seems like it's even more difficult to protect water. Right, seventy percent of our of our earth is water, and to protect kind of the ocean ecosystems. But I know that there are initiatives to protect those as well. How, how do you all go about doing that? Um, and does it differ from protecting land? Like, is it is that much more difficult? Actually, you know, difficult for different reasons. Um, you know, part of the most complex part around land conservation is that that's where all the people live. So you're, you know, when you're talking about uh, protecting, scaling up the, the conservation and restoration of land, it is, you can't do it without really thinking deeply about the intersection of people and um, protecting biodiversity, right? Like they have to be thought of hand in hand. In our oceans, 
um, it's a little bit different. You know, each country has jurisdiction over the immediate coastal zones and out to the easy lines off of their coasts. Those are countries that are, you know, adjacent to oceans. Mm. And then a lot, most of our oceans are, are global commons. And different regions of the world have different kind of structures, policy structures, or governance structures for how those parcels of, of ocean are managed. Um, you know, it was a really fascinating experience for me to, to work on ocean conservation, which I did, um, you know, pretty actively for many years um, from, the, from the perspective of campaigning and um, grant making when I was leading the, the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. It was a fascinating experience to start to understand, you know, how do you grapple with oceans conservation? Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, for example, Antarctica um, has, and now I'm forgetting the name, the acronym name for the governing body of Antarctica, but it's it's a certain scope of, cert, it's a small array of governments who have a say in decision-making around Antarctica. And they all have to agree with any decisions that are made. And we, at the time, and this was roughly like 10 years ago, we were working on a specific policy change um, to protect Antarctica. And that governing body had never had a, an active cam public campaign raised against it. So these were countries who were used to meeting up to make decisions about Antarctica without the public ever even knowing what they were doing. Um, and so it was really fun at the time to launch a public campaign um, and get a bunch of, of media and press out to this, you know, what normally was a very private meeting between different governments who wanted to kind of slice and dice the, re the resources and the riches of Antarctica. Wow. Um, it's, it's different in every every region and every country, and you know it's it is complex, and definitely not something I have ever thought of before. You know, there's so <laughs> many different parts of it. Sorry, I'm trying to look for the um, uh, the acronym, but uh, I'll find it and we'll drop it in the show notes. Oh, Camelar, Camelar. Oh, nice. Okay. And I think of all of the, or at least of the three pillars we've been talking about, the one we haven't really talked about too much about is regenerative agriculture. Um, but, and I think that's one of the, it feels like one of the newer ones, but maybe it's just because it's been picking up the most steam lately. I feel like that's all I hear about. I've worked with nonprofits and for nonprofits and in nonprofits that, um, you know, have worked exclusively on that, but it really seems to be moving quick. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's it's a really, I mean, it was really fun when we um, when we were at a point where our science made those three pillars really clear. Um, I was so excited about the regenerative agriculture piece because it was this whole new sector that I had never really engaged in. We had engaged deeply in, in nature conservation for years, um, nature conservation and restoration, and we had engaged and gone down the rabbit hole of, of the energy transition. But the food piece, the agriculture piece, um, fiber, it's the recognition of the opportunity for transformation across that space is exciting on many, many fronts. And I and I like I was saying before, I think part of it is is also because it feels very relatable for people. Mm -hmm. um, when you start talking about regenerative agriculture, 
you're also, you're not just talking about climate, but you're also talking about human health and the quality of our food and food being free from toxins and, Mm -hmm. and being healthy and nutrient rich. And this suddenly becomes a very personal issue, right? It's, it's not just climate. It's also about human health. Um, so I think that that's part of the reason that that it has generated so much kind of interest and excitement and enthusiasm um, is because it feels so directly personal and relatable for so many people. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for innovation there in particular um, and yeah. a lot of opportunity for like entrepreneurs, right? I think you can make money in that space, right? Look at Patagonia, who's done a really good job of regenerative fibers and turned that into a really good uh, business model. But then there's Beyond Meat. There's uh, the the Just Egg. There's a lot of those organizations that I feel like are doing something really, really cool stuff and also making good money off it, which is probably seductive to people who, um, you know, who, who are, are are trying to think of both ways, right? How they can help the world and how they can, you know, have a uh, make a, a sustainable career out of it. So. Um, I think it's a very, very exciting opportunity. And again, it's something that I've been hearing about a lot more lately. Um, and it does not seem like it's losing any steam at all. No. And, and to your point, I think um, there is recognition now, finally, um, that the solutions to the climate crisis offer a huge opportunity for investing in a different way yeah. um, and opportunity to invest in and and make decent money from climate solutions or sustainability oriented businesses and products and technologies. Um, You know, I would love to see the same sort of enthusiasm around the role of philanthropic capital, because the truth is, is we are not going to get there just with for-profit investment opportunities. Um, We just won't. There's, there are huge pieces of this solution set that are very reliant upon philanthropic capital and eventually government funding. Um, and so we can't, it's kind of the same, not to, not to say this, you know, the same thing over and over again, but the same way that this, that the climate crisis is complex, the solutions are need to be holistic and thought of together. And it's the same thing with the types of capital and finance that need to finance those solutions. It's a mix of different types of capital and the philanthropic piece is the one that is the hardest to motivate people on, but it is absolutely critical in this moment. Hmm. Yeah. Again, having worked in, in four nonprofits, I know how, how difficult that is, right? Um, well, what's super cool, and, and it's kind of what, curious, like, you know, we were talking about how um, monocropping and, and those large-scale agriculture, how would someone know to support, how would someone know where their food is coming from, where their products are, where their clothing is coming from. And to support, to support those smaller scale farms, those local, like I've always been curious about the best or a good method for that. Um, and then to kind of uh, avoid some of those larger uh, uh, players in the field. Well, it's not actually that hard, right? Like uh, when you go to your local farmer's market, that is your best way of sourcing locally produced and organic. And in some cases, not certified organic, but many of these farmers are doing everything entailed to be organic, but they haven't gotten certified yet. 
because it's a long, complicated process to get organic certification. But just going to your local farmer's market and supporting local food production and asking them questions about where their farm is and where they grow their food. Many of them even, even allow people come, to come and visit their farms. Um, so it starts to become a really, if you're inquisitive, um, which makes certainly makes life a lot more enjoyable if you are inquisitive, um, the journey of, of sourcing and finding food that is healthy, regenerative, organic, locally produced is an adventure. You know, you start to get to know your farmers, you start to understand farms, you, get to, you start to understand food production, um, which is something we've gotten incredibly distance, distanced yeah. from. I mean, I think part of, part of the issue is that we have to reconnect to the origins of our food and our clothing and our sense of place and understanding why we have clean air when we do have clean air. Um, you know, how our water is clean, how we, all of these propositions that we've, you know, that are, that support life for human beings are things that people have gotten increasingly distanced from. So part of the excitement is reconnecting to these things that are very basic parts of being human. You know, where your food comes from, knowing your farmer, yeah. knowing how food grows and is produced. Um, and those are all opportunities to reconnect to the earth. Yeah. And with each other. I love that. And um, so speaking of that, so we, we've been talking a little bit about 1.5 degrees C and the the issues or the um, the need to stay below that. Can you talk about what life would be at 1.5 degrees C of warming and, and even beyond? And then is there a world where we can, where let's say we get there and is there any coming back from that? Like how how does that work? So the reason that the 1.5 C goal is important is because the leading climate scientists in the world have all agreed that that is the limit at which we need to be aiming for because when we go beyond that it becomes increasingly difficult to come back so it's a goal line for policy it's a goal line for movements um you need to know what your goal line is even if it's ambitious right mm -hmm. um but we don't want to stay at 1.5 degrees c we want to bring it back to one degree C of yeah. global average temperature rise and lower if we can. And, you know, we, not just at One Earth, but um, the movement writ, writ large and experts that are working on this are trying to more fully understand the capacity for getting us back to one degree and below, right? Like what is the full potential of regenerative agriculture. If mm. we transitioned all of our agriculture lands to regenerative methodologies, how much carbon could we store in the ground? A lot of that is being worked through and more fully understood right now. Um, but we know that there's enormous potential, enormous potential. Um, and, and it is super important because like I said, once you rent, reach two degrees C, God forbid, three degrees C, four degrees C, systems start to really spiral out of control and it becomes nearly impossible to bring it back. So really galvanizing around limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 C and doing everything in, in our reach to commit to um, the transition that's necessary is, is, is utterly important. Well, I love how um, 
another thing I've never really thought about is just kind of um, br- like it is possible to bring it back, right? And, and, and to one limit yep. it, but then just kind of get it back to the point, um, which I don't know if a lot of people know as well, but like another reason to be hopeful, right? Another reason that these yeah. the these 76 methods can not only get us, limit us at 1.5, it can bring us back to a more um, a more natural, comfortable level, which is awesome right there to know about. Well, and like I said, there's all these incredible additional benefits. Um, it's not just about this technical number that we need to be attaining, right? It's, it's the solutions, implementing these solutions at scale start to address a whole suite of additional issues around, around justice, um, around health and equity. And it's, it's interesting. It's, it is, this is not just something that's going to get worked out in, you know, in, in boardrooms around the country, it's going to literally require all different groupings of society, you know, whether at a super local level or a national or international level to kind of commit to the transformation that's needed and bringing policy to bear community action to bear, um, you know, bringing, scaling up education and awareness about the solutions that exist to mobilize people. It really does require a very holistic solution set. And then in the end, what we get out of that is not only rebalancing our climate, but also, you know, creating and rebuilding a very vibrant world, but also a just world. All right. (laughs) Well, hey, let's, (laughs) let's talk. (laughs) Yeah, that was great. So let's talk about those initiatives, right? How can people find and support those initiatives? So we, you know, our, I mean, One Earth has a very unique kind of particular frame around this. Um, And because of this unique experience of having worked with hundreds of organizations and leaders around the world who have been implementing this work, um, we're very aware of the potential for scaling those solutions from the ground up. Um, We're also very aware of the efficacy and and long-term sustainability of driving change from the ground up. Um, But we're also super painfully aware of the fact that less than 2% of all charitable donations go to climate and environment efforts. And just a fraction of that actually reaches frontline grassroots efforts and communities. Um, often, you know, and and even less reach people, organizations led by people of color, led by indigenous people, led by women. Um, and we know that there is huge efficacy and potential to changing that that resource paradigm. If we can flip the script and get significant more resources going to climate and environment projects and initiatives, led by grassroots community-driven efforts, in many cases led by indigenous people, in many cases led by women or led by people of color, it could be game-changing to us actually limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C. So One Earth, you know, we we were working, we, we had the science, we had been building a lot of kind of the media and communications components, but what we spent the last couple of years building is the project marketplace. So you can go on our website and you can explore hundreds of projects from around the world um, that align with our science, align with those solutions pathways, 
um, you know, energy transition projects, nature conservation and restoration projects, and regenerative agriculture projects. These are projects led by hundreds of different groups in different regions around the world that are implementing those solutions and need resources to scale their work. So we've built the project marketplace. And if you go on there, you can explore these different projects. You can learn about them, see photography, watch video, connect to them, be inspired by them, and you can contribute to them on the project marketplace. One Earth doesn't charge a fee. Um, all contributions that go to projects go directly to those amazing projects, our partners that we're honored to work with. Um, and there's there are other things to explore, as you've seen on that on the project marketplace and navigator. Um, it has a global frame, so you can really zoom around the world and get a sense of the region, specifically the bioregion that all of these different projects are in. Um, so it's an attempt to help people start to visualize, see, and be inspired by and support the growing movement of amazing projects and leaders and communities around the world that are implementing those solutions today. And I can attest, I'm on it right now. It is super cool. Like you can scroll, you can, you know, it's, it's a globe, so you can scroll around and you can see different uh, uh, initiatives by region. You know, I, I'm going immediately to like the uh, you know, South America, you can see what's happening in the Amazon, you can go to the Congo, you can see all these cool initiatives. And like you mentioned, you can filter via um, uh, like all sorts of different parameters, what region they're in, what um, uh, what kind of initiative it is, which, which one of those pillars it filters, or which one of those pillars it supports, the funding level. I think it's great. Honestly, I think it's what the conservation um, and like climate initiatives have needed for a long time. I think it's just having a holistic list and, and they'll, they'll push you out to different, um, to talk through those initiatives. Like you can read more about it and support them. I think it's incredible. So I really, um, yeah, again, it's, it's just such a cool thing even to just get lost in. And then especially this time of year when a lot of nonprofits need that philanthropic help and they're trying to make their goals is a perfect time to, um, to support those organizations and, and, you even mentioned there's opportunities to volunteer with them and some of them. So, Yeah, where we're heading with it right now, um, and, and the simple URL for folks to explore the Project Marketplace and Navigator is one.earth. If you put that in, it'll take you directly to the Project Marketplace. Um, and to point out, you can either check out the globe view of it and also explore the bioregion that you live in um, and get a sense and an understanding of kind of the the map of nature where you live. Um, and then you can also explore, you know, projects in your bioregion that are on the ground climate solutions that need your support today. Eventually, and where we're heading with this as we build it out is a much more robust platform that would also allow, allow for volunteer activities and really support robust collective action. But as you can imagine, this was quite a feat to pull this off and it's still very much a work in progress. Um, but yes, you know, as we build this out, we'd love for folks to, to find projects on there to support. You can also just support the project marketplace across the board and we'll get resources to the, to the projects that are most in need. Um, and, you know, you can follow us on all of our social media channels. We do a lot of robust storytelling around climate solutions, projects, and the incredible heroes that are leading the way forward. Um, 
and you know just working to really tell that story that is is the untold story awesome I appreciate that so much. I think that's so important as we've been talking about to tell those stories and to make sure people are aware of all the good work that's been doing and to hopefully ultimately become hopeful about tackling these huge issues that we're facing, these existential issues during our lifetime. So, Justin, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it so much. I know you're super busy, especially this time of year, um, but I really, really appreciate you sitting down and talking with me about uh, both One Earth and uh, the, the um, Project Marketplace and everything that you're working on right now. It's uh, invaluable work and we all owe you a huge debt. Of, we have a huge debt of gratitude. So thank you very much. No, thank you. Just thank you for the opportunity to talk about it and to share more. Because um, like I said, it's truly about building a movement of, you know, of millions of people that are committed to to building and creating a different future. One that looks very vibrant um, and joyful and positive. Um, and we can't do that without, you know, the opportunity to, to talk to more people and spread the word. Mm. So thank you. Of course. I, for one, am fired up. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much again, Justin. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews until next time. Take care.